Hello and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. Welcome, Stephen and dear listener, to the COVID zone. Uh, that's why I sound like this. I'm, I'm at the end, thankfully, which is nice. But uh, in case you're wondering why my uh, voracious Kingdom Hearts 1 playthrough came to a screeching halt very suddenly on our YouTube channel, that would be why. Uh, but it does mean <laughs> that I've played a lot of video games and experienced a lot of video game media. And uh, there was one thing that happened this week that automatically sets the Aether alarm off, uh, which <laughs> the Aether alarm. <laughs> I'm going to trademark like that. that. Yeah, what, what does the Aether alarm Sorry. sound like? It's just like a bunch of choir of angels. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be our first piece of merch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Aether alarm. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's like a foghorn sized alarm that you can install in your house. Yeah, and it's like just a choir singing one note. Anytime at Pokemon tweets. this kangaroo has a human face Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you guessed it dear listener there was an event for pokemon scarlet and violet which is ironic considering the episode that we released that same day had a whole segment about how uh they hadn't announced any more information about scarlet and violet and i had theorized that maybe they were going to push it to 23 incorrect baby we're getting scarlet and violet this year it's coming out in november which is exciting and there was a new trailer for it and also they updated the their website and you know what that means there's a lot of weird shit on the website <laughs> as there always is <laughs> with new pokemon games uh if you have if you haven't been listening to this show for that long uh you might have missed the pokemon sword and shield lead up which yeah. i think was like you and i slowly falling into whatever the the dark part of stranger things is we pivoted from being like hype men to archaeologists very quickly <laughs> where it was like we went from excited to like trying to understand the remains of something that never was you yeah. know <laughs> do you okay i'm gonna ask you right off the top do you know if you're gonna get scarlet or violet scarlet no question you're gonna get there, scarlet. like i am usually pretty ambivalent i i think especially every generation after like ruby sapphire the excuse for dividing them up has worn thin you know yeah, yeah. so like it's kind of interesting how second gen was the first gen to make the cover Pokemon be legendaries. It's easy mm-hmm. to forget that in red and blue, it was like the starter evolutions were yeah. on the cover. And to be honest, I don't really think like which legendary am I going to get has ever been super appealing to me because I don't no. really use legendaries. You know, honestly, I, I wasn't into them at first, but I do kind of like how the new legendaries look. I like that they're rolling into this theme of the past and the future and the fact that they are weird dragons with tires on their chests. So yeah. one is like a monster truck tire the past and one is like a sleek <laughs> brain punk tire the future so i'm leaning scarlet because i like the idea of like prehistoric pokemon more that's like very fascinating to me and i like the professor more as well i'll be honest yeah and that's the new divide is there are different professors which yeah is this is interesting because i do feel like this is more of a litmus test for what kind of person you are than ever before in a previous <laughs> pokemon game <laughs> And it does make uh, sense so does, to me that you would go Scarlet as the person who, you know, made me play Chrono Trigger, et cetera, et cetera. To be clear, mm-hmm. I enjoyed Chrono Trigger. But I, I would definitely be the person who would pick the uh, space bike uh, over the, <laughs> the, the dirt the, truck. Yeah, yeah, the West Coast Customs chopper, you know, uh, yeah. no, Orange County chopper. Right. Which which show yeah. was which West Coast Customs was uh, exhibits thing. Pimp my ride. I, this is this means nothing to me, but I I, <laughs> okay. I, I believe in you. Yeah. Abort, abort. <laughs> anyway, 
Look, I just saw a bunch of unknowns flying past me when you were like, dirt chopper, bikes are us. And I don't know. You got him, man. I'm I love I love what's going on with these games. I also me really too. appreciate that this is the first time I've seen a Pokemon announcement that didn't immediately get followed by like a bunch of weird people on the internet telling me why it was bad because like the trees don't look real in Pokemon. <laughs> um so yeah. Everyone just seems excited about it. And honestly, some of the stuff that they've announced in here is like exhilarating. I mean, for example, it's going to be co-op. It's going to be four player co-op, like for real, for real, which is wild. Because in Pokemon Sword and Shield, they had the wild area, which you could go out to and you could do like co-op raids against Gigantamax wild Pokemon. Which honestly, like the marketing lead up to that game, when they revealed that, I didn't care at all. But that actually became one of the sticking points for me. Like I I played that game longer than I would have because of the raids. They were a lot of fun. And I think that like making Pokemon co-op has kind of been this like missing ingredient for so long because there's always been this multiplayer element of trading and battling. But I think actually making it cooperative, even just in the raids, which was a kind of a silly thing, fighting like a giant Snorlax together. Yeah. And like there was like (laughs) a logic to those battles that wasn't matched in the game. So it was like hard to gauge what to do. But just like being like, okay, like just have co-op in the actual game is a great idea. It also kind of reminds me of what I liked about the camping in Sword and Shield, which I think was kind of like an underutilized element of that game. Yeah, totally. This game, this game is going to be like legitimately co-op, which if you're wondering, OK, what does the gameplay mean then? Is it like, you know, you're making your way around the world? The way it works in Pokemon Scarlet and Violet is that it is a totally open world. And the I, the hint, the, the breadcrumbs lead me to believe that you can challenge any gym in any order and it'll scale to whatever level you're at at that point or however many gym badges you have, which... For those of you who have been listening to the show for a long time, you may remember a, a ROM hack for Pokemon Crystal I brought a couple of years ago that was called Pokemon Crystal Clear, which was essentially taking the idea of Pokemon Crystal, like taking that game and removing all of the boundaries that were limited by HM. So like, you know, if you couldn't get from one town to another because you needed to cut down a tree or you needed to surf from point A to point B or whatever, that ROM hack removed all those limitations, which meant that you could go anywhere that you wanted to at any point and the entire world would scale to however many gym badges you had and i remember saying on that episode this is how you make pokemon an open world you could very easily map this to you know the modern version of pokemon and it would i think work really well and that seems to be what they're doing that's the implication at least on the website so i think the idea here is that your friends can just join you at any point and you could just run around the world and catch pokemon and do whatever you want i'm curious what happens when somebody joins your world and you're in co-op and then like you go up against a trainer like it's like a random trainer out in the field yeah. like you're doing a double battle against that person suddenly that'd be cool <laughs> are you doing a quadruple <laughs> battle like what happens when the four of you are running around <laughs> and you run into just like youngster joey who's telling you about his shorts like is he gonna pull out four rattatas i don't know poor youngster joey going up against two human pokemon players <laughs> <laughs> that are gonna have a team of like four or five and he has three bugs yeah four Fuecocos. <laughs> hey no no shit on Fuecoco. <laughs> take it back yeah i i'm honestly way more excited than i was initially i was like a new pokemon game is always going to scratch a certain itch by default even the weaker ones like it's always kind of fun to, to see what the variant is in a new pokemon game yeah but that's kind of what they've been riding off of for a long time this game seems to be a really nice kind of best of both worlds between pokemon legends rcs and like what you kind of expect from the formula because like honestly i really loved the swings of rcs and i love i loved the exploration and the uh 
catching mechanics. But after a certain time, it is sort of the appeal kind of lost on me because I felt like there was kind of an interesting story happening. But even though like I respect them for not doing the gyms and stuff, part of me kind of wanted that because there wasn't as much of like an objective in my head. Mm. The idea of like the big boss battles where you have to throw satchels of like pacifying dust at the Pokemon just like yeah. sucked, to be honest. <laughs> so like the idea of that being like the thing that anchors the adventure wasn't super appealing to me. But the moment to moment gameplay was incredible. So what I'm hoping to see in, in Scarlet and Violet, I don't know, like it's still unclear if it's going to have the same exact mechanics, but even just having an open world where you're running around that combined with the more traditional gym structure, but added to the idea that you can do them in any order. I think that might be like a really nice middle ground for the series to, to try out. Yeah, I'm expecting this game to be, I think, a little bit less dense than what I'm seeing in my head. You know, I'm not I'm not expecting like a Breath of the Wild, like full open world experience but i'm i'm expecting something kind of akin to that at least you know uh kind of kind of what we had theorized around when sword and shield came out that's like the wild area but everything and if that's the case like i'm gonna be on board i what i'm most concerned about as with every pokemon game is what the narrative is gonna try and be um sure because they're all they're always just big question marks and i i find that they get in the way more frequently than they like aid the player experience but i do i do appreciate this idea of like a past versus future thing there's a lot of people on the internet who think that whatever version you get the opposite professor is going to be the villain which i think is oh a really cool yeah. idea depending on you know which way you go so anyway i can't wait to fight the past with my uh <laughs> With my laser bike Pokemon. I can't wait to team up with Ayla from Chrono Trigger and fight the future. Um, <laughs> I also have a theory, and I want to yeah. call this now, and maybe this is already confirmed and I'm just excited about nothing, but I, I have a feeling that the legendaries are going to be like open world vehicles. I think that they will like transformers into a bike of some kind. Yeah. Because it just, it just seems like the Chekhov's gun of Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, where they both have tires on their chest. It would be a huge missed opportunity. Kind of like in Pokemon Legend. Like there were a lot of Pokemon that were solely to kind of help you navigate the environment. And that's something that I really want to see more of, like even more than just the open world aspect. I think the games that have focused on like Pokemon's relationship with the trainer and what they can do outside of just battling. Yeah. Like I really, I loved the details in Let's Go Eevee and Let's Go Pikachu with like riding an Arcanine through the town. It doesn't only really serve mm -hmm. utility, it's mostly aesthetic, but it does add a lot to making the world feel alive. Totally. I also love in, in Heart Gold and Soul Silver the little points on the map where you can take a picture with your team. And like, I want to see more of that kind of stuff in Scarlet and Violet. And that's kind of what I'm focusing on is like, for this to feel like a big open world, I'd rather it like be filled with moments like that versus just being an actual open field that is like theoretically bigger but feels empty right i think that like the best pokemon games have always had really iconic locations and moments and i hope that this game kind of focuses on that which honestly i'm kind of expecting given like there seems to be a higher focus and like it looks like there's like a new art style for this game yeah there's a strong sense of identity with like the spain inspired setting and like you know what goes into that and that's something that i think the the more recent pokemon games have done well with like really focusing on setting. So I'm excited to see how that all crystallizes. Yeah, me too. I, I'm I'm yeah. really looking forward to this. Um, and I'm glad it's coming this year. I was a little bit nervous about it, uh, honestly. But uh, November 18th is the date. Yeah, that's, uh, man, this is, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because I feel like this year began so like front loaded with big game releases that everyone thought this was like a wild year. And then this summer is like kind of empty yeah. for new releases. And then the end of the year picks up again, sort of. 
So I think that like it almost feels like the opposite of last year, where last year was like really, really slow and then a floodgate opened in September. Um so I'm just curious like what Goatee will look like this year. Yeah. And and how the year will actually shape up to be. Yeah, I think it's gonna be really strange. I, I already yeah. think it's gonna be really strange. Because I I, <laughs> I mean we could just roll right into the next thing we wanted to talk about if you want to, because I think that actually yeah. kind of gives us a little bit of a hint as to what happened. So Sony had a state of play also uh last week, which I think, you know, everyone was kind of up in the air about like, is this gonna be their big E3 thing, you know, like in light of E3 no longer existing uh, this year, at least there are rumors that it's going to come back next year, which is very silly. But, you know, it's not around this year. Sony had an event planned for for the uh, beginning of June and released a bunch of trailers for a bunch of stuff that uh, I was kind of wondering, are we going to fill in those last couple of months of the year? You know, like as we know, as you just mentioned, beginning of the year, a whole lot of stuff, whole middle of the year. I would say the middle two thirds of the year, really almost nothing. But uh, there's a whole like holiday season that is really kind of not filled with anything at the moment uh, that I was really curious about. And, to, you know, just to throw it right at the top, I don't want to bury the lead. They didn't announce a lot of stuff is coming this year at the state of play. It was one of their bigger events. I'll say that much. It's the yeah. first state of play in a really long time where I walked away being like, I'm really stoked about almost all of it. Yeah, me too. It's just like. Like most of it comes in 2023 or later. So right right off the bat, they opened with Resident Evil 4 getting a remake, which, you know, has been long rumored. I think if you just have been like following Capcom and what they've been doing with Resident Evil, it's not even like a rumor, really. It was more just like an inevitability, just a question of when they, you know, made it through one and two and three and four was obviously going to come next. What I think is most interesting about the Resident Evil 4 announcement is that it doesn't have remake in the title the way that two and three did. It's just Resident yeah. Evil 4. And the implication has been and based on some like insider stuff has been that this is going to be a little bit of like a narrative shift from what actually happened in Resident Evil 4, which if I'm being honest, it could use it. There's some stuff in Resident Evil 4 that I think they could probably do better from a narrative perspective. You could revisit that and like gloss it up a little bit more. I'm more curious about how different the gameplay will be from the original. Um, You know, are we going to move into like... I don't know, like a more Resident Evil Village style gameplay scenario, because Resident Evil Village, as you and I talked about when we played that game, really felt like almost a blueprint for how to make Resident Evil 4 again. Yeah. And uh, as long as they do that, I feel good about it, honestly. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I, I've always kind of been weirdly on the fence about remaking 4, because 4 is like pretty timeless, at least in gameplay. I think that yeah. that game like still is such a landmark title and has been re-released so many times and it's never felt bad to be clear yeah. like every every time yeah. it gets re-released on like a new platform it still like feels pretty good it, what i love about this is like you could remake resident evil 4 and it could totally flop and we'll always have the original and it still feels good it's like still a great game yeah it's it's sort of like a skyrim where it just gets like it's like a state like if there's a new system it will have resident evil 4 on it in some capacity yeah, totally the thing that i'm curious about is that like the original resident evil 4 is so campy it is like so like yeah evil dead 2 you know screaming no thanks bro at the boss <laughs> and like yeah it's a really perfect blend of like complete cheese and also like genuinely scary moments but this the horror is like when you're playing mm-hmm. so it's actually kind of nice to to like the cutscenes almost serve to like give you like a breath of fresh air of like accidental comedy and then you're back in the thick of it and you're like surrounded and, and it's more I would say Resident Evil 4 is more tense than like actually scary so you know I think it, it, it's a perfect little game that I think really does stand the test of time whereas something like Resident Evil 1 or 2 I do think are more primed for a remake because like they were so ahead of their time in terms of like survival horror at that like they established the genre 
Yeah. But I think like when you go back to playing one and two, there is a lot to be said about the like PS1 graphics being like actually the scariest looking thing <laughs> and the tank controls adding to the horror. Absolutely. But like I think that the the GameCube remake of Resident Evil 1 is is the version I would say to play if you're curious about the first one like that. And that game is like straight up horror. What I love about the old Resident Evil games, like whenever you walk into a new room, there's like a set camera angle. So it has a very purposeful like film style to it. Yeah. And the remake of the first one on GameCube like really goes all out with that. It just it feels like purposely creepy and things are at like weird angles and like that can normally not work because it will like interrupt the flow of your playing. But it does add a lot to the experience visually, at least. And then the remake of two, I really liked. And I that was like kind of them adding modern horror elements to Resident Evil 2 which I would say is like before 4 that was like the best one. Resident Evil 2 felt like you were seeing a lot of what they did in Biohazard so like kind of PT elements as well. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely like the goriest game which you know is hit or miss for me yeah. but that was actually why I didn't play it which yeah uh, that was that was the first time that I had ever played a Resident Evil game where I was like this is actually too much and there's almost no camp happening here I mean like they're trying their best in some cases but like they really do try and take it very seriously and because of that all the gore just like feels almost like multiplied by 10 in a way uh and I I was just like I this feels off-putting I just don't want to put myself through this I get that I push past that because I just I love like Resident Evil 2 is one of my favorite games from that era so like there was a lot of nostalgia for me because it really is like the same map they are trying to tell a more serious story and they're also like like in that game like your knives can break and like every room is in the dark so like you can only see what's in front of you when you're like looking directly in front of you Mm -hmm. those little decisions make it like a really really scary experience I haven't played the remake of three. I've heard more mixed things about that. But overall, I think with their remakes, I've been impressed by the ability to not just like do the same game again. Every remake has been like a different take on that. So based on the trailer for the Resident Evil 4 remake, it seems like they are dialing down the camp. But I do hope there's still a little bit of it because I think that's something that I loved about Village was like, and even Biohazard, like they really struck that Sam Raimi perfect balance. Like Absolutely. The dad riding his car at you in the garage in Biohazard is like like peak of the franchise for me for real yeah absolutely yeah i i feel like my my fear going into village was based primarily off of my experience playing two and needing to bail from it because i was like i just don't think i could take it and if this is where resident evil is at now maybe resident evil is no longer for me which was kind of a bummer because i love the franchise and have for a long time and resident evil village just like completely nailed it like they they got it so right i i would argue that that's like maybe the best game in the series it's like tied for four with me maybe yeah it's up there it's definitely like top three for me for sure so uh, uh, a capcom that just made resident evil village going in directly to making resident evil 4 again is i think sick <laughs> i'm really yeah. looking forward to it i i feel pretty confident that it'll at least be good maybe great i i'm stoked and i think the important thing is that they're not trying to replace four like four exists yes. you can still like that that's my thing with remakes. Like I never wanted to just be, well, this game is old, so we have to make a new one. Like I hate right. that idea. But the idea that like, okay, four is readily available on pretty much every platform and is still great. And then you can also play this like uh, almost like a revisit of the idea. Yeah. 
without saying enough to make it a spoiler, uh, very similar. It seems like what they're doing here is very similar to what Square has been doing with the Final Fantasy VII remake. Yeah, um, which, I was I was thinking that exactly. Yeah, which I would be very happy with. I mean, that sounds great to totally. me. Totally, and uh, maybe it'll even be done in one video game instead of being broken out into parts. That'd be cool too. <laughs> we also have uh, for our patrons, we did like a spoiler discussion of Resident Evil Village a while ago. In that, without saying too much, I think we were both also really excited for like what comes next in that story and like to be clear the story of village is like totally a mess but i'm in like i really am invested despite it being like about mold um so (laughs) you know we'll see what i'm excited on both paths for resident evil which is cool yeah on the resident evil front uh after they announced the resident evil 4 remake they uh announced a bunch of stuff that's coming to psvr 2 which they still haven't like dated uh or announced pricing for or i think even shown off a lot of the hardware. Maybe they did. I'm not really sure. Anyway, uh, they announced a bunch of games. The first one, uh, just keeping along with the Capcom theme, was Resident Evil 8 in VR. So Village is coming to VR, which is cool. I would play that again, honestly. I I foresee myself getting PSVR 2. I really liked the first PSVR. Uh, I'm like... I, I think I think people I think people generally liked it. It's definitely a very silly piece of hardware because uh, it requires about a hundred thousand cables. And um, from what they've announced for PSVR two, it's just going to be the one. It's just going to be one cable. You just plug it in to the PS five and it works, and that's really exciting. So I, I I foresee myself picking one up. I think at some point. So uh, expect to hear me talk about the experience of playing Resident Evil Village in VR eventually because. Uh, that will be the reason that I finally go finish my new game plus run. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, yeah. there, there's so many like there's <laughs> there's so many like disturbing close ups in that game that will be like shocking yeah. in VR. <laughs> yeah, like uh, yeah, but the, I I would rather do that. Like the idea of playing Biohazard in VR is too scary for me, but playing village in vr with one area exception i think that could be a fun fun time <laughs> i know exactly there's what you that mean. yeah there's yeah. that one i actually blocked that out of my memory i was like village is a fun camping time that <laughs> is like, oh no no there's one area that is not that um <laughs> but that that is cool yeah i mean vr is like the, we could have a big discussion about that i think it's a fun thing when games are made for vr in mind i think i i would push against the idea that like vr is inherently the future because i just think that there's something about the experience of like having that kind of around you spatially is like a very subjective thing to like want or not want and also just physically the idea of having something on your head for like a long period of time <laughs> even though psvr is more comfortable than like the oculus rift in my experience at least yeah absolutely very much i just think that like there's there's something about that that i i always kind of see it as a novelty thing not to dismiss the cool stuff being made for it but i just i don't see it like replacing the ps5 which i don't think they're really marketing it as but just every now and then i hear that like oh vr is the future it's like i don't really i think it's just another thing Mm, yeah that's my take at least i i feel that yeah i uh i i found that it has enhanced a lot of experiences that i've had but it's very much like a uh it's like a taste on the day kind of situation you know it's like had what what experience do i really want to have today uh, and VR does or does not factor into that, I find. But, you know, in the case of Resident Evil 8, I will absolutely play that in VR. I think that's very exciting. They also announced another zombie game immediately after that, which was The Walking <laughs> Dead in VR, which I really felt nothing about. Um, unfortunately, sorry for The Walking Dead fans out there. Do you, have any, do you have anything on that or can we just move on? I don't know if I saw that part of the announcement. I, is, it, is it like the Telltale Walking Dead game or is it like a new Walking Dead No, it's game? like a, it, they're like taking The Walking Dead IP and like making a kind of survival horror thing. I'll say this. I... 
as someone who in like the early 2010s read the first two compendiums of Walking Dead, the single piece of Walking Dead media that I think is like fantastic is the Telltale game. Like the first season of the Telltale game. Yeah. I haven't played it in a long time, but like if you want if you're if you want Walking Dead stuff at some point in time, I would say play that game. Yeah. Uh, but I have no thoughts about this. Yeah, I uh... Honestly, there was that point in the same era around the early 2010s where uh, I, I would say I just kind of completely burned out on zombie media. Yeah. And I, I really haven't bounced back is what I found. That's like, where as, I'm at too. As more and more games and franchises have come out, like State of Decay, for example, is kind of one of the bigger ones. I just I just find myself like not wanting to engage with it at all. Back for Blood also was a situation where like I, I had a good time playing that with you and AJ and was not at all interested in like the zombie side of it. It was just more of like a a fun reason to hang out with my friends. I'm curious what would bring me back. You know, like Resident Evil always has the camp side of it and always has the gameplay like locked. And that's the reason that I play that game. It's not because like I have a hankering for zombie media and I know that Walking Dead is going to lean very hard into the zombie side of things and like that's not, yeah. that's not interesting to me anymore, really. Yeah, I, I enjoyed like the beginning of the comics, but like it's kind of ironic that the whole premise of that series is like it's never going to end until it abruptly does. <laughs> and like that it's at a certain point, I kind of got it. It's like, OK, like I don't know if, if I'm like getting any new stories here. It just kind of becomes like miserable at a certain point. Right. And the irony is like the sort of relentless hunger of the zombies themselves translating to this never ending media about zombies. Like there's a way to do it. Well, I mean, zombies can be replaced with a lot of different things, but yeah, I'm, I'm over the, like we have to survive amidst the zombie apocalypse stories. Like I, I think that that's kind of been done to death. Yeah. After that, they announced uh, that no man's sky is coming to PSVR two. Oh, cool. Um, no Man's Sky is already in VR and uh, people seem to like it a lot. And I, I think if I recall correctly, I might be wrong about this. Please correct me if I'm wrong, dear listener. But I think they tried to put the original No Man's Sky in PSVR and it didn't work. Like just PS4 wasn't powerful enough to make that happen. So this would be like a, hey, PSVR 2 is powerful enough to make it work thing. If not, I know it was available in VR for other platforms. Like I definitely know it was out for uh, like Vive and stuff uh, way back when. So I am interested uh, to see how people feel about it because No Man's Sky is everybody knows at this point is very much like a you know came out people didn't like it and has gone through enough revisions and added enough content that i think people have not only turned around on it but like people love 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 no man's sky at this point yeah and there's just like a lot of video game there and there's a lot of cool shit to experience in vr specifically which i would love to give a shot like truly like if i if i pick up psvr 2 i will absolutely do this because i am one of the rare people that like loved no man's sky right when it came out like one of our first ever episodes of the show is me playing no man's sky um and like loving it um so i'm i'm excited to check it out again with all these new updates because i really haven't since it seems like a good game for vr as well given like yeah. the point of view and the and the subject matter yeah it's exciting it is exciting after that i should mention i'm an employee of marvel anything i say and do is not uh, representative of my employer uh etc etc uh they announced that spider-man is coming to pc marvel spider oh nice uh for the playstation 4 and 5 is now coming to pc um i think i think they announced also in like a side thing that uh miles morales is also coming to pc uh later in the year um so just following this trend of playstation exclusives and making it to pc eventually which is kind of an interesting thing 
honestly. And uh, again, to be clear, like definitely some like weird tangled business interests in terms of who I work for and whatever. Um, so I just want to be clear that I'm not saying this in like the Spider-Man realm specifically, but I'm talking about Sony more holistically. I do find it very interesting that they've decided to take all of these exclusive games and say like six months to a year later, we'll eventually release this stuff on PC. And I know that's not so dissimilar from what Microsoft is doing because Microsoft is announcing and releasing all this stuff on Xbox and PC, usually day one, and most frequently also on Game Pass, I find that to be a more holistic and understandable strategy than what Sony is doing, honestly, because the question slowly starts to become like, why do you buy a PlayStation if you have a gaming PC? Whereas with Xbox, it's like very obvious. They don't need you to buy the Xbox. They want you to get Game Pass specifically. I feel like that's the big difference between these two strategies here is is like... Sony actually maybe is cannibalizing themselves a little bit, releasing all this stuff on PC eventually, whereas Xbox, it all just kind of feeds into their larger, more holistic thing, which is like the box doesn't matter. Yeah, that's a great observation. I didn't even think about that. On one hand, I'm happy that like more people can play the thing. So like, absolutely. I think moving away, like, you know, as someone who cares about game preservation, like getting away from exclusives being a thing, I think is like overall positive. But you're right that like, I think this is also one of many things that are confusing the need for a PlayStation 5, yeah. you know, where it's like, what is this actually providing me even above a PS4? Because like, again, there's only been so many PS5 exclusives at this point. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and we're now approaching like three years of PS5 uh two yeah i think it's two yeah two still i mean and again there's a lot of things that are complicating that but i think you're right to point that out yeah it's just it's just very strange because i i could see a situation in which you're a person who has like a specked out gaming pc and you love playing on pc and you're considering buying a ps5 and then eventually you see like you know god of war 2 That'll probably come to PC eventually. Okay, maybe I don't need to drop the $500 on the new video game console (laughs) if I could just get God of War 2 eventually when it drops on PC, you know, in a year after it comes out or something. Like, I could just be patient for a little bit, which is honestly always going to be better for most people who play video games anyway to wait. It's always better to wait because patches come out. People tell you if the game is even good, you know, <laughs> like there's yeah, there's there's a lot of benefits of waiting. Uh, if you can be patient at all in this hobby and in this industry and in this medium, like that's going to be better for your wallet. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's very interesting to me that uh, they, they've chosen to continue doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I just got a flashback of getting my PS4 in 2016 and getting like four games for the price of what would be one on yeah. launch. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Unless you have a, a podcast like ours, you can probably wait like years. For most <laughs> <of this stuff. laughs> um, after that, they announced uh, Stray, which is a game that I, I think yes. you and I have been interested in and excited about for a long time. Um, that's, I think, an Annapurna interactive joint. Um, it's about a cat like wandering through like a cyberpunk future filled with robots. Not like totally sure what the actual like plot or narrative or uh, really like overall game vibe is. But it, we did see a lot of like extremely beautiful shots of the cat running around and like fighting against what seemed to be bosses and doing like investigative work, which is very fun. It seems largely like stealth based yeah if i had to guess i mean especially just playing as a cat in a city that just makes sense yeah but uh yeah i'm i'm really excited for this this is this was a standout for me in this event and it comes out in july so this is actually one of the few coming out this year yeah it comes uh july 19th which is cool so I'm I'm excited about that. That's that's gonna be really cool. I really do feel like this event kind of has some something for everyone at some point or another. Even if you don't have a PlayStation, you have a PC, you get Spider Man. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. 
Uh, after that, we got uh, the Callisto Protocol, which is a new game by uh, the team that made Dead Space originally, um, who I think like left EA eventually and, and went on to go make their own studio. This is like yet another piece of zombie media. I think a lot of people are giving this one the benefit of the doubt, specifically just because it looks like we couldn't continue making Dead Space the way we wanted to. So we're just going to make Dead Space again with a new IP. Really seems to be the vibe here. And for a lot of people, that's going to be enough. Like that's going to work. And I think it's very exciting for the people who do love Dead Space that you're going to get both this and the Dead Space remake from EA. Yeah. Uh, Kind of probably around the same time, I would imagine. This is coming uh, around... I think December. I think they said like first week of December this comes out. So if you're a Dead Space fan, uh, you're going to be eating good over the next like year ish. I played the first Dead Space for the first time last October for Halloween. Yeah. And I I really admired it, but I didn't really like enjoy it as much as I wanted to just given like there are some things that haven't like held up mechanically. But that being said, they really nail the atmosphere and like the unease of sort of like a uh alien inspired horror game so i'm really really curious about a remake for that and that could actually be like really interesting for me yeah i'll be curious to see how that performs because i i was interested in going back and playing dead space again as well as you were saying uh around october last year um because all that stuff is available on game pass but that was also right around when they announced the remake so my thought has just been like i'm just gonna hold out for the remake and see how that feels because i remember enjoying dead space when i played it like right around when it came out i remember liking it a lot and i, I didn't end up playing the sequels I don't believe. But that having been said, I'm also interested in the Callisto Protocol. Uh, although I just, you know, had my little rant about how I'm not like, you know, super stoked about getting into zombie media again. This is another one of those situations where like I I'm willing to give it a shot if enough people play it and are like, hey, this is great. It's definitely not like at the top of my list at the moment, but it is one where if enough people tell me, hey, you should probably check this out. I'll probably check it out. Yeah. My whole thing is like any idea can work if it's coming from a genuine place. Like, yeah, just because something has been done a lot at a, at a certain point in time doesn't mean you can't make it interesting. I think the thing about zombies in particular is that it's very easy, especially in games, to default to zombies, which is why I think <laughs> there's this feeling of apathy when there's a new zombie game, because it's like an easy thing just to kind of throw in. Yeah. But I think like there's always I'm always open and there's always room for something being a surprise hit. And like these things are done to death because they have an initial warm reception. Yeah. I'm realizing now that I I skipped a game, which is uh, another PSVR 2. I think probably it seems like it'll probably be a launch title. It seems like it's like kind of the big flagship, but it's this game called Horizon Call of the Mountain, which is a spinoff of Horizon franchise. Uh, And I said this in our Discord uh, during our thread where we were all talking about it. I am actually, I think, more interested in playing this than I am in playing like a mainline Horizon game. What I've come to learn about myself playing the first two horizon games is that although i really appreciate them and like them and play them for a couple hours there's no way in which i'm ever going to finish any of them it's like same thing uh, that i feel about like the assassin's creed games and have felt about them forever is like they're just too big for me i think they're just like there's the scale is too wide they're not a game that's going to be for me i know there's a lot of people who will like buy like three video games in a year and they have the time to play an entire horizon game and i'm sure it's super rewarding aj our producer loves the horizon games for that reason but you know considering you and i play a lot of games every year it's really hard it's really really hard to commit to like you know a 50 to 100 hour open world game uh that's like littered with side quests and uh like crafting mechanics and looting and stuff that being said we did finish elden ring in like a couple weeks so there is a place in our in our realm for for that to happen yeah 
But I know what you mean it's 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 very hard to like it takes a lot for us to need to see something to completion. Yeah. My whole thing is like there are some games that I think kind of demand that um, and that it's more easy to do that. If it's like a 30 hour game and I think it's like kind of defined by the finale. I'll give it that time. Mm-hmm. But if it's something like Horizon, I don't think my opinion on it is going to change if I'm like 10 hours in versus 100 hours in. It's going to be kind of that experience the whole time. Not to say that there isn't a good story there, but like, right. you know, it's not going to be defined by that for me. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. That having been said, a more concise VR experience that's specifically like almost Celeste adjacent, all about climbing a mountain uh, and trying your best to like survive against robots while climbing a mountain. That sounds very cool to me. Yeah, that really does. Because I'm sure it's not going to be a full 100 hour open world experience. Um, It seems like something that wants to be more constrained um, and specifically just like wants to show off cool technology and cool hardware. That's like totally my jam. That's like exactly the kind of thing that I really like. Um, I I really like when companies take big chances with IP like this. And uh, this is the kind of thing that I'm excited to check out. I also think bow and arrow just works well in VR. It's like just one of those things that just yeah. like works well on that platform. Yeah, totally. I forgot what it's called, but there was like a VR tech demo game. It might have been Oculus Rift, but you had to like defend a castle and just like shoot arrows at these like little minions that would show up. It was great. I played that mm. game for like hours and hours. <laughs> so I'm sure this will be like even better. Yeah. After that, we got a game uh, called Roller Drome, which uh, I think everyone saw and immediately thought was Sable. Yeah, like, it has that art style. Yeah. Right, right out the gate, kind of has the Morbius thing going. Um, Mobius. Morbius. Yeah. Oh, no. Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> Close uh, enough. Anyway, this seems to be a game that's like you are on roller skates in a roller rink and you also have a bunch of guns and it's like a team deathmatch thing. Truly, I think it looks really fun. Uh, I'm really excited about it. I, th- I think I think I'm going to have a really good time. It's another one that's coming this summer. It's coming in August. Uh, so I'm very excited to check it out. Uh, I do like the art style. I, I remember playing Sable and thinking, I hope somebody else does this at some point. Uh, and it seems like somebody already did. And that's cool and good. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Roller drum seems like a fun idea. I'm, I'm curious to see if it's like more. And maybe they say this in the trailer and I just forgot. But I'm curious to see if it's a more like PVP thing or if it is like a more single player focus thing because uh, it, it seems to imply a pvp side of it but you know it might not be i'm not really sure yeah i was gonna say one of the best compliments i can give any game is that it has dreamcast energy and this definitely mm. does where it has that kind of like what i associate the dreamcast with is like arcade games that like just did the wildest shit to grab your attention so yeah. the premise of the game will be like you know a crazy taxi thing is a good example of that or like jet set radio or just like really kind of outlandish and colorful ideas that are based around like one central mechanic and roller drum is that in many ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a really cool idea and I think like it's simple enough that I could see this working really well and almost like a rocket league kind of way, but we'll see what happens with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about roller drum that comes out in August. Yeah. After that was a game called Eternites, which uh, I'm, I'm just going to read the description. I'm going to read what they, what they say this game is because I think the trailer is a little bit loose because there's just like a <laughs> lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Eternites is a dating action game blending a love story with adrenaline-driven combat as you make the most out of life during the apocalypse. Scavenge for supplies, explore dungeons, and go on dates. Save the world and find <laughs> love along the way. This is uh, this is pretty wild. I mean, it looks like it kind of has... Um, I, you and I both, I think, in the chat compared it immediately to Scarlet Nexus. Um, it just it just has like big Scarlet Nexus energy. Someone asked if it was brain punk and everyone yes. screamed yes. Yeah. yeah, it absolutely is brain punk. Uh, there is one shot of this trailer where uh, there's two people standing next to each other and it says, press R2 to hold hands. <laughs> um 
So, I mean, it just seems like it's going to be big silly, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to see when it comes out. It says early 2023. I feel like I need a little bit more information still, but it's definitely an interesting idea. And the press R2 to hold hands is like so silly that we might just have to check it out. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens when it drops. Uh, yeah, I, I need a little bit more info, but we'll see. Early yeah. next year. After that was the big one for you, and I'm very excited to talk about it, is uh, oh Street Fighter God. 6. Yeah. This so we actually talked about this off the show. So this is not in our pile of accidental summons where we say something on the show and it comes true. Uh, so the magic <laughs> of the aether might extend to off air as well. But I mean, there was going to be a Street Fighter Six. It's not like a hugely. Uh, I mean, they announced it a while ago. Yeah, right. But my line of thinking was like, in the last few years, Capcom has really like completely reinvigorated a lot of their franchises. I mean, Resident Evil is a good example where you look at where that series was pre-Biohazard and where it is now, it's night and day. You know, Resident Evil 6, like, almost tanked the entire series. Yeah. Monster Hunter's always been going strong, but I think Monster Hunter World kind of turned that series more into, like, a larger community and less of a niche audience. Right, Um yeah. And Street Fighter was kind of in a similar place. I mean, it wasn't going anywhere. There's always going to be a community for Street Fighter and fighting games. While they're often niche, like there's going to be at least like a baseline level of people that will check it out. And if it's something that like Street Fighter that will kind of have a community kind of built into it from go. Mm -hmm. The thing is, like, I remember like in college or when I was in college, Street Fighter 4 had had uh, actually came out a little bit before college, but. Street Fighter 4 and like the various revisions of Street Fighter 4, yeah. Super Ultra, were really big as well as Mar Marvel vs. Capcom 3. And like it felt like this kind of um, new era of fighting games. And it was really exciting. And I was really into both of those games. And then Street Fighter 5 came out and kind of was just like there was like very little enthusiasm for it in that in that interim. I feel like fighting games became especially prey to DLC. Like that was like, we talked about this on the Mass Effect bonus, but like early 2010s DLC was like the thing to try to push into every game. Yes. And like there were, there were so many Capcom games that were just straight up, like characters would be on the disc. That would be like $5 DLC. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be character DLC. Like I often get them because usually in the best case scenarios, it's like someone like Guilty Gear Strive where they're like making them after the game comes out. Like you're kind of supporting continued support of the game in some ways. But like Lei Wulong from Tekken was just on the CD and you're charging me $5 for him and, and Tekken versus Street Fighter. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, so there was a lot of stuff like that that was kind of like, I think, creating a lot of like lack of trust in Capcom at the time. Yeah. And then five came out and like was laughably ridden with that. Like the roster on launch was like maybe just Ken. It was like very small. <laughs> it was like a handful of characters and everyone else's DLC. And the sad thing was like the game itself was great. Like the, the mechanics of Street Fighter V people were into, but everything else was so soulless and the launch, it was just unfinished. It was an, yet another example of a big company pushing a game before it was ready and then charging the rest of it as DLC. So yeah. like it was, it was a huge bummer and I was sort of waiting in the back of my head, like when is it, when is Street Fighter going to get the modern Capcom treatment? Like when are they going to like learn their lessons and like really breathe new life into it? And we only had this trailer, but I, I feel really confident in where this new game is going just based yeah. on the vibes of it. Yeah, me too. I don't have uh, an affinity for Street Fighter really. I, I never really like grew up playing it. Um, I didn't really know anybody who was playing it, but I do, I do appreciate it in terms of like it's standing in like the video game pantheon of things. Yeah. That have existed right. forever um it's obviously like a huge deal and i 
remember being bummed out hearing that they were bad for the past couple of releases. Like I remember yeah. hearing that that stuff about the DLC, uh, the on disc DLC was like the big was the big thing that you were just talking about. I remember hearing about that and being like, oh, that really sucks for people who like Street Fighter. That's <laughs> really a huge bummer. But as with everything else, modern Capcom, like I am very excited to see what they're going to do with this. And and I think this has the best chance of being the one that I check out like finally and like really try and get into the franchise in some way, shape or form. Do I think I'm going to become like a person who plays Street Fighter only? You know, am I going to try and get really good at Street Fighter? I don't think so. I know that's probably like going to be your jam, which is exciting. <laughs> um, and maybe yeah, it's going to be a big deal for me. You can be my sparring partner. But that having been said, I am just very excited about what I saw in this trailer because it looks like they really are blowing it out into this much bigger thing. First of all, they changed the logo, which I, I want to be clear. There's like a big blowback when they announced Street Fighter six and released the logo. And they were like, yeah, they just got this from this like, you know, this like stock photo website, which I always thought was very silly because like stock photo websites exist for like enterprise use. Like you're supposed like if you're a company, you're supposed to pay a licensing fee to use logos. And that's what they did. Uh, and then they got a lot of shit for it. So then they changed it. I do think the new logo looks better, though, to be clear. Uh, now that yeah. it's like custom made in-house. So they changed the logo. I just want to say that at the top. But they also showed a bunch of really wild stuff. Like it seems like there's this whole kind of, I don't want to say open world kind of thing, but there seems to be like a Splatoon 2 Encopolis Square thing going on where yeah. like you, you can wander around a semi-open space and there's like maybe some kind of like light RPG stuff happening in there, which I'm very, very curious about. Like I maybe that's where the story mode is happening or whatever, but I'm just very interested in that. And if I recall correctly, there was also a moment where it seemed to kind of blend between that and an actual fight that was supposed to happen as well. So like a conversation that somebody had in that open world kind of tilted into the Street Fighter perspective and then a fight started. Uh, so I'm very curious about that. There also seems to be not so unlike Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, I guess. This very much like old versus new mentality, like they're introducing a bunch of new fighters who seem to be trained by the like series long-standing veterans yeah, yeah yeah which um i think is very cool uh in terms of a way to introduce new blood into the franchise character roster wise i think it looks really great uh and at the end they tease this thing that's i think just called the hub it's called the battle hub um and seems to be i think not so unlike is it is it dragon ball fighter z that has the like you run around as like little chibi versions of the character and uh, yeah. you can like interact with other people who are actually playing the game in real time in the real world. Exactly. Um, yeah. That seems to be what they're doing with this battle hub as well. It's like you can kind of go in and hang out with people in a kind of a virtual space, a metaverse, if you will. Oh, um, here we go. Yeah. So uh, NFTs for Street Fighter 6 confirmed. Looking no, forward to it. Don't, no, don't do it. Don't summon <laughs> that. Don't summon that into existence. Oh, uh, my God. I'm excited about this, though. It's I was. <laughs> <laughs> It's coming in 2023. Who knows when? No, I, I, I'm really excited. I mean, I think that I like you mentioned Dragon Ball Fighter Z's approach to like the hub. Like that is a lot of fun. And like, yeah, I wonder if there's going to be kind of like a customizable avatar for that in Street mm. Fighter 6. Because like in Dragon Ball Fighter Z, I was always Piccolo in the learning to drive outfit. The postboy shirt. Yeah, that was I'm, I, I was so happy that was an option. I'm like, thank God someone knows me. <laughs> but yeah, here, I mean, I think like. That transition you mentioned of like going from that to the fight, I imagine you can probably just challenge other players there to like a certain type of match and then it will go into the match itself, which is honestly really cool. And yeah, I, I like I really like the look of the characters some around. One thing about Street Fighter 4, I was never super into that art style. Like everyone was mm -hmm. like really kind of like like super muscular in a way that was like almost like off putting. And like it was kind of this 
for me, the ideal presentation for Street Fighter is still Third Strike. Like, I love the way that that game looks and, and feels and sounds. Yeah, it's beautiful. I eventually got used, like, Street Fighter 4 doesn't look bad, but it's, I, I kind of had to get used to the art style. In 6, I think it's like it's a nice evolution of 4's art style. I just think everyone just looks better, for lack of a better word. Like, it just looks better, and I like the I like the redesigns of some of the, like, series veterans. Like, Ryu having a beard and being kind of, like, visibly a little older. Yeah, I, I was not a huge fan of the look of Street Fighter 5 uh, either. Yeah, it was like fine. It kind of looked like 4. It was like a variation of 4. What's weird is like I feel like 4 had a stronger visual identity and I feel like people didn't like that as you were just saying. I I like the cohesion there. 5 I remember seeing it being like, oh, it actually looks like this is just kind of like they went too far back as a response to what people didn't like about four. And six just seems to be like, we're just going for it. We're just like really yeah. going to like go nuts with it. Uh, and that's that's exciting. I'm re- I'm really excited about this. Uh, as I Me said, too. it comes out in 2023. We don't know when in 2023, just next year at some point. I could see that being like a big temple summer release. Yeah, that makes sense. After that, moving on, only a couple of things left. Tunic is getting ported to the PlayStation that's coming out in September. So very excited for more people to get their hands on Tunic because that game is great. Uh, definitely one of the best of the year i would say we saw another trailer for season which is a game uh that got announced at a state of play i think last year yeah this is coming i think they said in autumn autumn of 2022 so we're gonna get that this year season is a game uh i i won't go too in depth i'll just put a link in the show notes to the reporting on this but like there's been a lot of like really problematic stuff going on with the development of that game but i know there's a lot of like very passionate people working at that studio who want this to be really good so um you know don't let the actions of one person prevent you from uh, supporting this game that I'm sure the developers want you to pick up and check out. So season's coming uh, at some point this year. It looks beautiful. Uh, I'm I'm excited to to see like what the gameplay is like i'm excited to like know what i'm doing when i play it and after that the big one uh which was much rumored to be showing up at this event but i was unsure if it was going to happen because i was wondering if this was going to be another one of those like weird events where they were just like guess what you can get the playstation 4.9 now or something (laughs) and uh we got final fantasy 16 footage uh like a lot of it. Mm -hmm. it we got like a pretty big trailer for it just a lot of a lot of stuff to go over in the Final Fantasy 16 trailer. No longer turn based officially, which I think is, you know, not that surprising because Final Fantasy 15 wasn't turn based either. But I think some people were wondering if they were going to go back to it. I think it's been confirmed that a lot of the development team had previously worked on Dragon's Dogma, I believe. Whoa. So I was kind of expecting it to have that sort of hack and slash RPG aspect. Also, I mean, looking at what Square has been doing, like I often sort of assume that like a lot of games that kind of come out in between big releases are like testing out an idea so i feel like strangers of paradise is a little bit like them testing that into this game which seems to be like a fully fledged like less souls inspired but still have that kind of spectacle of real-time combat yeah yeah i mean we got we got final fantasy 15 which was that we got uh, final fantasy 7 remake which was also that you know i think i think 7 remake had that real as you and i talk about all the time because we both really love it that really interesting blend between real-time and turn-based that i think works yeah. super well and I'm curious to see if anything like that is going to bleed into this. Like, I would love to see any version of that show up here. Um, but even even without all that, I just kind of like trust Square Enix at this point to make good combat, like real time combat. I feel like that that's kind of a weird thing to say. But eventually they just kind of like 
turn the corner on that. And it just seems like it's at least going to be serviceable. And uh, when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, Final Fantasy is not a game I'm usually playing specifically for like the combat mechanics. Like I'm playing it for the story. Um, And it's another situation where like, I think I just kind of trust them implicitly to at least make something silly. if not good, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I I'm really excited for this. I definitely have a lot of questions still, but that's good. Uh, It's good to be excited and confused about Final Fantasy. (laughs) So we knew that like it was going to be a more traditional medieval setting and we knew that it was going to be darker. So like it definitely seems to be following up on both of those promises. And that's kind of what's diffusing my enthusiasm a little bit is like I'm not crazy about the kind of grim dark screaming at the king as a village burns yeah style like i don't really know if it's like going that far but i do think what i'm excited about is these like summon versus summon battles like in the sky where there's like giant health bars for like ifrit and shiva and like i I, i'm curious what the what the role of summons is going to be because summons have always Mm -hmm. been very interesting narratively and mechanically in in all the final fantasy games and i do really like the final fantasy games that like give a lot of narrative weight to the summons i think 10 is a good example where like that whole game is yuna's journey of like getting the i think they're called ions in that game yeah but regardless like you you get the summons and they like kind of mark beats of the journey and it's like only she can have that power so it's sort of like a chosen one ability in some ways and then in nine like summons are like just like really scary weapons like if a kingdom has summons it's sort of like like the atom bomb and like mm. it's it's like something to be feared and uh you know the the ability of the party to get that is like kind of wild yeah so i like that like they are positioning summons in this game to be like a really big deal at least in spectacle and honestly that's all it really needs to be at a certain point but i'm wondering how that's going to inform the narrative and like you know what what the sort of political story around these summons is going to be yeah i i have really no affinity for or understanding of the summons on that level but i did see a lot of people like totally freaking out about the focus on summons in this one and that excites me just to see other people excited about it i'm like fully on board this will be the first final fantasy game that i've like been excited about as a i would say like a fan of final fantasy now because even 15 like came out and i wasn't really a fan of final fantasy but i i jumped into it when it came out just because you know there's like a big hype machine around it but at this point i've played enough of them that i'm like really actually legitimately excited to get my hands on a new one as it comes out so this trailer like fucking ruled i mean it it was yeah it's re- it's really pretty stunning and uh i i trust it i trust it i mean you know the the director is the director of final fantasy 14 um which i think is a smart move um yeah and and uh creative business unit three is working on it everybody knows them everybody loves creative business unit three uh <laughs> y- you know from their most recent world tour uh yeah I, I don't know i'm just i'm just excited about final fantasy 16 I, I feel very good about it that was their last announcement in this state of play as i said I, I feel like there's kind of something for everybody in this one it was like a really like well-rounded pretty solid event i do love how it ends with just the announcer going like goodbye and like it just immediately shut that off that was really funny yeah i thought my tv broke or something <laughs> <Just> like, <goodbye. laughs> it was very funny but yeah i mean ff16 was a good one to end on so it was this like operatic choir yeah. singing the names of every summon i'm curious though there's like a lot missing still like god of war 2 as i already mentioned before like where where is that game i think a lot of people expect it to come out this year still a lot of people expect that to be like their last game of the year you know their big like holiday season release it's like i don't know where to be found i'm wondering if there's gonna be another sony event before the summer is over i could see another one in like august or september or something but even then it almost feels too late like do they really not have anything for the end of the year i don't i don't believe that 
Yeah, Sony also tends to like, as evidenced by this event, like we hear about things at least a year in advance. You know, they they tend to announce things pretty early. So yeah, I don't. It would be it would be more of a Nintendo move to be like, in three months, this giant game is coming out. <laughs> but uh, who knows? We'll see what happens. Yeah, Sony used to do a thing called the PlayStation Experience, and I'm wondering if there's going to be like, that. That was usually around like I don't know August ish. Um, and I'm wondering if they're going to do like an event kind of in lieu of that this year uh, and, and announce some stuff. But right now it seems uh, it seems like they don't have anything. I was really hoping that this event would like kind of shine some light on what's coming at the end of the year. It, it should also be mentioned that like Summer Games Fest is um, at the time of this episode coming out, I guess would be like next week um, or oh, like the, yeah. this weekend to next week. So there's like a lot of stuff that we're about to hear. And it's possible there might be some like big Sony exclusive stuff showing up in, you know, some kind of Summer Games Fest event or whatever. Um, they're doing their like big kickoff stream etc etc maybe there's something in there like maybe that's what god of war is being held for or something that makes sense yeah, that god of war feels like a summer games fest announcement for it sure I agree. i'm not sure why but it just does <laughs> yeah it definitely has that energy i i'm very sad that i won't be able to go to the imax screening of the summer games fest um <laughs> i did a little peek behind the curtain but uh you and i are recording two episodes today because i'm going away this week for my birthday which is fun um going to disney world uh, which is gonna be very silly but uh, it'll be the first time ever, not ever, but my first time in like probably I want to say like 10 years that I didn't watch live the like big gaming events that are happening in a year, which uh, wow. is gonna, it's going to feel really weird for me, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens and like experience it all secondhand, like through people's reaction tweets um, and not live and in person. It is kind of fun. I remember I was at a family dinner when the Chris Pratt as Mario direct <laughs> happened and my phone my phone was like exploding with people being like Steven help yeah. Steven you need to see this yeah if you're in the discord please like just completely abuse at mentioning me if something that seems like it's made for me happens uh, I'm really excited uh, to experience it all secondhand I think it's gonna be really silly but I imagine you and I will do some kind of recap or something when I'm back which I'm excited about yeah I think so but anyway that's the state of play and the Pokemon Scarlet and Violet thing this segment went way longer than I think either of us expected probably uh so maybe we should take a break and come back and talk about some more stuff that sounds good to me see you soon talk to you later goodbye dear listener hello hi we are back (laughs) welcome we uh we asked for some questions from some listeners and uh luckily one of them actually kind of overlapped with a thing that i wanted to talk about anyway um so this is a question from mush on twitter who asked uh brendan recently you shared a portable system on twitter that looked interesting it emulated lots of different handhelds even ps1 i don't know uh if i didn't know that type of thing was your jam do you have suggestions for people who might not have much experience with them so I wanted to talk a little bit about my weird uh, retro emulation handheld rabbit hole that I've been going down over the past, I would say, y- couple of years at this point. Yeah, um, definitely kicking off with our, uh, our our desire to take a look at the entire Game Boy Advance catalog. Um, I really wanted something that I could take on the road with me. I knew at a certain point that I didn't want to specifically like use an actual Game Boy, I think, to play a lot of that stuff. I wanted the like kind of modern emulation uh, uh, tentpole features like save states and load states and things like that. I thought that that'd be very helpful. So I got really into researching and, and uh, checking out a lot of these retro emulation handhelds that you can get off of the internet for like pretty cheap for the most part. I mean, they're like, they could be like a hundred dollars or less for like a pretty good one. So I started checking out a lot of these things and uh, ended up just like getting really deep into <laughs> emulating stuff in general. Uh, it very much became like, I would say more a hobby than just something I was using as a way to like 
get the job done, which is what it initially started as. So I'll say this because I said it on the Game Boy Advance bonus, but it's worth mentioning again. The system I used mainly for that episode uh, outside of like actually playing stuff on on actual hardware. Thanks again to Kyle Starr for making us these like wonderful Game Boy Advances. Yeah, they're so good. I did use to play a lot of stuff, to be clear, because it's it, it is fun to play on the original hardware. But the device I used the most was this thing called the Ambernick RG351P, um, which is a kind of like horizontal looking Game Boy Advance that can play up through, they say, like PlayStation 1 and PSP stuff. Um, I, I find that that stuff gets a little bit iffy. But for Game Boy Advance specifically, the screen is like the exact same aspect ratio as the Game Boy Advance and has like a much higher pixel density. So things just look like gorgeous. Gorgeous. Like Game Boy Advance games look stunning on that screen. It's like a really, really beautiful handheld. And I like it a lot. The thing about this entire product category that I kind of want to set up before I get even further into where we're going here is that a lot of these devices require kind of like a technical know-how that really just involves like almost like like reading and comprehension in a way like you just need to be able to follow guides that other people have written really um, because there are a lot of really great resources out there a lot of people who are like really deep in this space who are like making custom firmware like custom UIs and things for these things um, to make them more user-friendly than they are when they come out of the box because when they come out of the box generally speaking they're like a nightmare <laughs> they're like really hard <laughs> to work with they'll like sometimes come preloaded with like thousands and thousands of ROMs that it's like like patently legal to sell on amazon.com and in a lot of instances those ROMs will come stored on like an extremely knockoff SD card that will die on you within like your first time trying to load a save in Pokemon so there's like a lot of there are a lot of things that can go wrong when you buy these things. You just kind of need to like know all of the pros and cons before you go into stuff. But what I will say is I'm a person who does just like a shocking amount of research before I buy anything. I'm like really one of those people who will look at every single option and decide what is the best one for me in my use case. Um, and the Ambernick 351P was like so good. It, it's uh, just, you know. It's made of plastic. It feels kind of like a Game Boy. It has that beautiful screen and was a great way of playing those games. But ever since then, I've been like in the zone. Like I've really been like interested in that space and where it's going specifically because there are a lot of companies that are competing to do this kind of stuff. Ambernick, I think, is like one of the most well-known because their build quality is so good. But there are other companies like Powkitty who are making like 15 to 20 of these emulator handhelds a year. Like they're just like throwing out like all these different wild form factors. They just rolled out one like last month that has like a bear's face on it for some reason like it has a bunch of buttons in the shape of like a bear's face i don't know why <laughs> they did that i don't know why that's happening they have one that like looks like a game boy advance sp but is made of like fisher price level plastic and just doesn't feel very good and nobody really likes it very much outside of the fact that it's like the only one that looks like a game boy advance sp so there are like a lot of different companies trying to make this kind of stuff out there and they all kind of generally use the exact same like internal processors and stuff so they all kind of have the same level of support in terms of what you can actually emulate so you really get in the weeds here and there about what this stuff is actually capable of so so all that having been said, where I've landed over all this time and checking out a bunch of handhelds, like I said, I have that Ambernick one. I have another Ambernick one that looks like a like an old school Game Boy, has like a you know, Game Boy DMG kind of style screen and layout and stuff. Where I've landed is that I am not a person who wants to collect these at all. Like I'm not a person who wants to like buy a whole bunch of them and and just like enjoy the process of setting them up. What I learned about myself over the course of the past like year and a half is that I am very much a person who wants to play video games. Not a person who just like wants to sit there and transfer files back and forth between an SD card and like watch the load screen work. <laughs> 
um, which I know is a part of it. I know that's like definitely a part of the experience for a lot of people is like they like the experience of setting this stuff up. And to be clear, I have had other people in my life approach me and say like, hey, I want one of these things. What should I get? And I'll say, if you just send me the money, like I'll set it up for you and I'll like get it good to go. I'll like do all the processes for you. Um, I've done that many times for people, um, not just with retro emulation handhelds, but also with like PlayStation Vita and like 3DS and stuff. Like I've had people bring them to my house and I'll just like work on them and like uh, like hack them for people so they can emulate stuff, which is a fun process. I enjoy it. But at the end of the day, where I've kind of landed is like, I really just want devices that fit in my life and allow me to do things that I couldn't do before. And I've landed on two devices that I want to talk about. And I want to be clear up front that like buying these things generally is kind of a risky deal. I more so than ever on this show, I want to be clear that like Steven and I are not here to try and sell you on things like we're not like QVC over here. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to convince you to buy these things. I'm just I just want to say because this this product category is like so wide reaching that there are some things that I would recommend checking out if this seems like it might be your jam. The first of which is a device that came semi recently that's called the miu mini it is a very small game boy style device uh i i just bought one for steven recently for his birthday as well which he doesn't have yet but next time he comes here i'm gonna give it to him which is <laughs> i'm very excited thank you but the miu mini is fascinating because i i have been waiting to buy one of these things for steven for a really long time because i i just know that you would appreciate having all these games on the go in some way shape or form but i've always been so disappointed by the like user interface and usability of these things they all always feel like they require like 10 more steps than they should uh, to do like basic shit like load or leave a game is like you know <laughs> it's like oh why do, why do I have to press three buttons to do that you know why do I have to like yeah. memorize a bunch of like strange button controls like I'm playing Street Fighter to be able to like <laughs> just to leave yeah, yeah just to just to stop <laughs> it doesn't make any sense and the Miu Mini really felt like an answer to that and and having used it for the past couple of weeks I, I really do feel like it it does solve a lot of my problems it just is very clean I, I would say out of the box it doesn't feel very clean you need to follow a guide I would recommend uh, checking out Retro Game Core is a, is a guy named Russ on YouTube who also has a website RetroGameCore.com who writes like really in-depth written guides that are like you just follow step by step and you know what you're doing and you're fine and you're not gonna like brick your device or anything but you can uh, you can change the, uh, the front end of the MiU Mini that comes out of the box with a new one that was made by like users of the device that's called Onion OS that allows it to become like a thing that I would feel very comfortable just handing to anybody and saying like you're gonna have a good time because you turn the thing on it makes like a fun like startup noise uh, and there's just like a button that says consoles and you just see these little pictures of all the consoles it plays up through the PlayStation 1 like pretty perfectly I haven't really had actually any issues emulating any games that I've tried on this thing wow. which is wild it plays up through the PlayStation 1 uh, and you can just see all these consoles laid out and you go into them and you could just see the list of games and you can pick whatever one you want um, and anytime you go in into or leave a game it'll immediately like do like a save state so if you jump back into that game later it'll pick up exactly where you left off as if you had so like quick resume basically yes exactly yeah. as if you'd put your switch yeah. in sleep mode or something you can immediately jump back in wherever you are that's what i used to play pokemon blue for a pokemon blue bonus um and was great uh specifically because the form factor it's like the size of almost like a deck of cards i would say like if you were to compare it to like a credit card almost it's like almost the same size which is wild i'm holding it up to the camera for steven for a visual aid yeah 
it's a little wider than than a credit card. Yeah. yeah. Um, which out of the box, I was a little bit nervous about because I was like, am I are my hands going to cramp playing this thing because it's so tiny? And that's not the case at all. As soon as you start playing stuff on it, it just like feels really fucking good. The screen is amazing. The screen is gigantic. There's like almost no bezels at all. Uh, so, you know, you're getting a lot of screen real estate. It's really pretty. I really love this device. I think it's really, really, really stellar. And the biggest thing for me, going back to what I was saying before, but like I'm trying to have experiences that I wasn't able to have before. Like I want these devices to kind of fit into my life in a way that 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 feels natural. The Miu Mini is actually so small that it fits in my pocket like seamlessly. And I br- I literally do bring it with me everywhere I go now. Like it is always in my pocket whenever I'm out and doing stuff, because at any moment, like if I'm on a subway or I'm like waiting around for somebody like at a bar or something, I could just pull it out of my pocket and start up a game in like seconds and play it for a little bit. And then as soon as I press the power button to turn it off, I know that it's going to save my state and I can jump back into it again later. That freedom of like having full ass handheld console quality games up through the PlayStation in my pocket with that kind of ease of use is like the dream. That's like the dream for these devices for me. That is like far and away the best thing that I can recommend um, is finding something that does something like that. And the Mini Mini at the moment is that. I do want to mention there are a couple caveats. For example, I sure did have to order four to get two that worked for Steven and I. Um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time trying to get them, spent a lot of time waiting. It took like over a month for the first one to get delivered and was broken on arrival. The second one just didn't show up ever. And then the next two that I ordered actually showed up and worked and are great. Um, so I imagine they're like working out some kinks in terms of mass production and shipping and stuff like that. But it's worth mentioning that like you might just get a brick device as soon as it shows up and you have to worry about like sending it back and things like that or things might not show up and you'll have to like dispute claims with different weird websites on the internet to try and get your money back or whatever. So there's all of that. But at the end of the day, when you get it set up and in your hands, it's a great device and I really highly recommend it. Uh, the, the Miu Mini. I'll write the name out in the show notes because I think it's really killer. But I've been playing a lot of Game Boy Advance stuff on this actually now recently and it's great. It doesn't fill the screen perfectly. It's not you know the same exact aspect ratio like that Ambernick device was. But the screen is still big enough and beautiful enough that I feel like really great about playing stuff on here. So that's been really cool. And I think you're going to like it a lot, Stephen. I think it's really going to be your jam. I'm excited. The other device that I want to talk about uh, before we move on to some more video games, actually, is the thing that I've been <laughs> kind of talking about for a long time because I've been waiting for it since January when I first ordered it. The last week of January, I believe, is when I put my order in. It's this thing called the Ein Odin. This is a device that immediately really stuck out to me as like kind of the dream scenario because the big selling point of the Ein Odin is that it can emulate pretty flawlessly up through GameCube and the PlayStation 2. Wow. And it runs on Android, which is just like very easy to use. Like, if you've ever used an Android phone before, or if you've ever really used a smartphone before, you like know how to download an app and then you can play games on it, uh, which is very nice. So this is a, a device that took a very long time for it to show up again. Um, I ordered it in January. I got it uh, the last week of May and I've been playing around with it for about a week at this point. And I'll say this because it's worth mentioning. It's very expensive. This one was about $300 and that's like a lot of money. But the device itself looks exactly like a Switch Lite almost, I would say. It has way better ergonomics than a Switch Lite. Like it has like hand rests and stuff like a hand grip. And like I said, it runs Android um, and is very powerful on the inside. And I have been having... 
a fucking blast with this thing. I don't think it's for everybody. I really think it's like a little bit too expensive to recommend to most people. Luckily, there are like cheaper versions of it out there. You could get the the Ein Odin Lite, for example, or the Ein Odin. Um, what I have is the Ein Odin Pro because I specifically really wanted to play PS2 stuff. That to me is a library of games that I really, really, really miss and don't have a very easy way of accessing. And PS2 emulation notoriously has been pretty rough for the past like decade ish. Um, it's been pretty hard to emulate PS2 stuff, but people have made great strides very recently, specifically on the Android side of emulating PS2. And I'll just say like PS2 is the thing that works best on this device. It is unreal how good it feels to play PS2 stuff here. There are still going to be emulation problems here and there. We're going to talk about a game in a little bit that I've been playing that you've also been playing actually on the PlayStation 2 that has like one major graphical hitch that like does not ruin the game at all. But every time it happens, it's like extremely noticeable. But outside of that, like I've I've been playing stuff that I didn't expect to play running at like 60 frames per second scaled up to 1080p like in widescreen mode instead of the original four by three aspect ratio like working really well like burnout three takedown is a game i like desperately dearly missed that i've been playing and loving on this device that having been said again it's another situation where there's like a lot of setup i don't think that the user interface is like super helpful honestly like ein has installed a bunch of software on here where they tried to make it more user-friendly or make it more adaptable to other things um that just like takes it over the line of being something that i can recommend to most people but if you have the kind of drive to like mess around and tinker with settings and like spend literally two whole days getting the thing to work for you it extremely extremely will so this is a device that I like really, really love. I'm using it mainly to play PS2 and GameCube and game streaming on Game Pass, which has been fun. So I've been playing Oblivion on here, uh, which is the tweet that <laughs> Mush was referring to. Um, I've, I've been just like streaming through the Xbox app um, and playing Oblivion, which has been really fun and very silly. Because at the end of the day, this thing really does feel like a Nintendo Switch Lite that can do everything the Nintendo Switch can't do. Like it really feels like what if you had an open source Switch Lite and just got to use the power of that device to do kind of whatever you wanted? The answer is a whole lot of really cool shit. My other caveat is that GameCube actually weirdly doesn't work very well on it. Um, I've had a lot of issues with a lot of GameCube stuff I've played. The like long-standing Nintendo obvious games do work very well. Like Metroid Prime is great. Wind Waker is great. Twilight Princess is great. A lot of the Mario stuff is great. As soon as you start branching off into like third party and weird stuff is when I found it have a lot of issues. And that's kind of bizarre to say because I feel like GameCube emulation has been so rock solid for so long. It's very strange to have it not work like super well on this device. And I'm wondering if like that's just like a software update that can happen eventually where like somebody will update the emulator and it'll work fine. But what's blowing my mind is the PS2 side of this. I mean, opening up that library to me has been kind of a dream come true for like a really, really, really long time because there are PS2 versions of games that I've wanted to play for a long time. And simultaneously, there are just games that I've always wanted to check out that I just like, I don't want to go out and buy a PS2 and all the adapters I need to hook it up to my modern TV and and do that. I, I want something that's more convenient. And that like, I think overall gets back to this thing that you and I talk about all the time, which is like game preservation 
innovation and like making things work for people, um, making things easier for people to access because this is like an art medium. This is like history that people want to reconnect with or connect with at all. That's like completely inaccessible. It's totally closed off. And that always bums me out. So having this device in my hands that allows me to go back and play an era of games that I grew up on and like really have a very strong affinity for almost flawlessly is really, really, really beautiful. So where I've landed is that I probably won't be buying any more of these devices because I feel very strongly about these two. I don't think there's another one that's going to come out that's going to like, you know, if if somebody's like, oh, we made a device that can play PS3 games. Like, I'm not going to get excited about that personally. Like, I'm that's not really for me. Like, I don't really need to go back and revisit the PS3. I have two devices, one of them that I can like put in my pocket at any time and play retro stuff. And I have another one that I can play like in the comfort of my bed um, and play like cool, long PS2 games. And that that is serving my interests very well. So my my big recommendation, I would say for anybody who wants to like get into this space at all is just do a lot of research understand the caveats with these devices and simultaneously figure out specifically what you want and like don't become a person that's like going down the rabbit hole of just buying a lot of these devices to uh, try and like solve some kind of like mystery thing like figure out what you want specifically and buy the device that allows you to do that because it's so easy to open these devices up and see a list of like 10,000 games and say like I'm having the Netflix problem I'm just going to turn it off and not play anything figure out what you want to play and then buy the thing that can forms to that and not the other way around. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing all that. That's that's really insightful. And like, I feel a little spoiled that you're just doing that for me. So thank you. I also think it's funny that we're living up to our Scarlet and Violet allegiance right now because you have like, <laughs> oh my God, you have hacked the Matrix to to play PS2. And I literally just have a PS2 that still yes. works, thankfully. To be clear, if you have a PS2 that works and you go on the Internet and buy an uh, HDMI adapter for the AV cords, it's a pretty easy. It's like a pretty easy thing to do. Um, I'm someone who like really does not have the patience for a lot of this stuff so like it's not like super convenient I, I think with a lot of my systems like I have my PS2 kind of on the ready because it is a system that I visit more frequently than like the Wii or GameCube like the Wii is kind of yeah. tucked away and like that it's a pain in the ass to set up because you have to put the motion sensor up and like mm-hmm. get a Wiimote out and ready just to select the game that is likely a GameCube game so that's kind of a nightmare but with the PS2 like it still works and a lot of games for it are still pretty cheap um, I think that yeah. the DS and the PS2 are, if memory serves, they're both systems that were around for a pretty long time. And the production of both of them was like pretty high. So there are just a lot of copies of the system out there. Yeah. So like even getting a new PS2 is, I would, I would guess probably like around 70 bucks. It's not, it's not too bad, thankfully. And the game that we're going to be talking about is actually cheaper on PS2 than it is on 3DS. Yeah. So if you combine the cost of buying a PS2, buying a HDMI adapter and buying, you guessed it, Dragon Quest Eight: Journey of the Cursed King, uh, <laughs> it's like probably like a little over 100. Yeah, it's not 300. I'll say that much, which is <laughs> how much I spent. Uh, to get it running yeah, on the iNode. It's not 300. Uh, I will say that the big thing for me, like I, I finally caught up with the times despite my Scarlet allegiance and uh, I have a 4K TV. Getting stuff to like not look super blurry on that is kind of a gamble sometimes because mm-hmm. like yeah. the HDMI adapter I have, I can flip between 720 and 1080. But then like the game itself is 4x3 or 720. Yeah. So like 
fiddling with both and landing on something that like looks okay is kind of interesting. I do have like a smaller TV from 2009 that I'm debating. It's kind of just in my closet, but I'm debating like setting that up somewhere specifically for older systems, like not have as much of an issue mm. with like seeing it clearly. Yeah. So I might do that, but regardless, I do, I do like the HDMI adapter. It's, it's helped me stream some stuff too. Like I streamed Wind Waker a couple times from my Wii, which is like the most cumbersome setup to like set up a Wii, get the HDMI adapter then get a capture card it's a mess it is truly <laughs> the stone age in my apartment and that and that again it goes back to game preservation where it's like even if you have the system like i had the system that i got in the early 2000s and i still have to like jump through hoops to like get it to work properly yeah you know so it's the same problem it's a different approach um, but i think we wanted to talk about dragon quest 8 specifically because it's a game that we both really love that we brought to the show before that we both originally played on 3ds and we're now playing the original PS2 version. It is funny. If you do buy the physical copy of the PS2 game, it comes with a disc that is a demo for Final Fantasy XII, which I think is like a fun little piece of history as well. Yeah, I love that. And it, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's also the inverse, where if you bought a copy of Final Fantasy XII at the time, you got a, a demo for Dragon Quest VIII in there as well. Yeah, Dragon Quest VIII, I think, was one of the first times Square was really trying to market Dragon Quest to the West, because this yeah. has been... It's been like popular in the US, but not to the same level as in Japan. Like yeah. Final Fantasy took off way more than Dragon Quest did. Yeah, pretty famously, I think it was Dragon Quest Four that came out in the States and uh, like tanked sales wise. And they were like, well, never again. And then didn't really consider it until <laughs> until eight dropped. And then that kind of led to the DS ports. I think eight yeah. sold well enough that there was like an interest in in remaking a few of them for the DS, which thank God. Yeah, this is one of the reasons I, I wanted the Inoden was to be able to play this. I can, you can emulate the PS2 version of this game pretty well on like an M1 Mac, which is what Steven and I both use. But the idea of having this on the go in like a Switch style handheld format was really kind of the dream for me. And uh, it's it's very interesting to be playing this version of the game uh, after playing so much of the 3DS version. How far into the 3DS one did you get out of curiosity? Yeah, so I was, I was about to say, so the 3DS version of Dragon Quest Eight, I am probably around 20 hours into. Yeah, I'm, I'm around 20 hours in as well. Yeah. I got pretty far. I have the full party and yeah. it's a game that I've been kind of like... Like Dragon Quest Eleven, I just totally inhaled in like a, a short <laughs> amount of time, as yeah. I sometimes do when I fall in love with a game. Eight, I've been like kind of really taking my time with sipping like a fine scotch. Yeah, yeah. There are moments of the show where like when we actually do have like a bit of a break, there's like always like I always enjoy playing stuff for the show, but there's always like a game that I'm like, this is just me time. I don't have to talk mm -hmm. about this. It's just to enjoy. Totally. And that's usually Dragon Quest Eight, And then I end up talking about it anyway. It's just <laughs> a good game. Yeah. And it's also kind of endless in the way that a lot of Dragon Quest games are. I mean, I imagine it's probably the same length as Eleven. But because I'm actually taking my time with it, it feels more like this big journey. And mm -hmm. to kind of like we, we talked about it before, so I won't go too much into what it's about. But I do think it's really cool visiting different entries in the series that, again, as we've said many times, Dragon Quest is a series that is known for really adhering to tradition. They don't really change it very often, but every game has such a strong identity. It's a really hard balance to pull off. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that makes eight special, and I think the reason why they were trying to market it to the West as well is because it was the first 
fully 3D Dragon Quest. It was the first one in the series that was like a fully 3D world in the same way that like the jump from Link to the Past to Ocarina of the Time was. Right. Where suddenly it was this like open, vast thing. And I think because of that, the focus of Dragon Quest VIII really is this like sense of adventure and the sense of openness. And the game's tone is is lighter than, than most. And I think it's kind of known for having a bit more of a straightforward story. But where it makes up for kind of being maybe a little bit more by the books is having like a totally unhinged cast. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> this feels the most, and I've mentioned this before, but Dragon Quest eight feels the most like the beginning of a D and D campaign where like no one in the party really knows each other yet or like why they're journeying together. <laughs> and everyone's like kind of figuring out like who they are, but they like know what class they chose. So like, I won't spoil too much, but like the, the initial party is the hero who's like kind of this like traveling mercenary type character mm-hmm. uh, and this guy Yangus who is like your right hand man who I'm actually obsessed with like it kind of started off half ironic because his name was Yangus and I had to love him yeah but like whenever he says anything it's as if it's like a sitcom character entering in the crowd like all applause like every- <laughs> Everything he says is genuinely hilarious. And he's like simultaneously the voice of reason and comic relief. And I love that duality in him. Yeah. Yeah. He is like immediately a top five, like all time video game character. He he is so funny. And I I think I think that's we're not like totally off base treating Yangus like he is the second coming of some kind of God because they (laughs) really... They pretty immediately made a spinoff that was just centered on young Yangus, which I love, <laughs> which I don't think ever came out in the US, but they like very quickly uh, put into production and released. I think it's a Dragon Quest Heroes spinoff. Yeah, it's in the same spinoff as Rocket Slime. Rocket Slime, yeah. Young Yangus is in the Rocket Slime universe. <laughs> <laughs> the RSU. But anyway, Dragon Quest A just has this, this sense of adventure that I don't even feel as strongly in the other ones. I think that that's the best thing about it is that it's definitely the most like 11. Like you could really feel that while 11 is taking bits and pieces from every Dragon Quest and is really trying to be like a best of mm-hmm. in some ways, in structure, 11 feels like kind of a glossed up version of 8 where you're navigating this open world. And honestly, like the charm of the setting in 11 is like, so unmatched and it's so beautiful and nice to be there and you have such invested emotions just in the place itself but the feeling of majesty i got in in playing dragon quest 8 specifically the ps2 version because it's worth saying the 3ds version is fantastic and is in many ways just as good if not better and we'll get into like the differences between the versions but like when you go out of town in in Dragon Quest Eight on the 3DS, you know the the system can't really process the draw distance. So like, yeah, you're getting kind of immediately what's there, and it's still impressive. It's still very impressive that the 3DS can do this, but it is held back in that regard. I didn't realize how truncated the world is actually in the yeah. 3DS version until I started playing the yeah. PS2 one. Because I remember playing the 3DS one for the first time and leaving the town for the first time and being out in the open world, and you can see the monsters running around, uh, which is a big difference between that in the ps2 one which we'll get into but specifically they took the whole world and kind of shrunk it down so the the space between places is much smaller on the 3ds version than it is on the ps2 version which i was almost daunted by when i started the ps2 one when i left the town and i was expecting a kind of small distance between like me the one of the first places you have to go is like a waterfall down down a road um and in the 3ds version you can like see the waterfall from the town like you just like leave out the front door it's like oh there it is and you kind of like trek down this place for a little bit and you're there on the PS2 version, it's like a journey that I really it took like maybe 45 minutes of like grinding my way through to the point where I could level up enough 
to survive my trip to the waterfall, much less do the thing that you need to do when you get there, which I was really shocked by. Honestly, and usually that would be something I dislike. Like usually that would be something I I would point out. But here, what I really noticed in the PS2 version of Dragon Quest VIII, a lot of similarities to Wind Waker, where both games are very interested in just sort of like the untamed openness of the beats Mm. between the negative space. Yeah, yeah, it's like they want the trek from town to the cave to feel heavy and to have weight given to it, and that's what makes it not feel like tedious. Like it's. You know, I, I could see someone feeling, oh, this is grindy. I don't really like grinding. But like it asks a lot of you through the lens of Dragon Quest. It's actually not too unlike the design of Elden Ring, you know, where like when you first leave the first area, I'm not just saying that because Elden Ring is always on my mind now, but like <laughs> I, I think there's there's a lot about Elden Ring that is like kind of revisiting very retro design um, in I a mean. way that doesn't feel arbitrary. Yeah. I think that a lot of old games feel hard just because like they're designed unfairly, but Dragon Quest eight doesn't feel unfair. It just feels like it's giving weight to the world and, and just being able to see like trees and mountains in the distance. It, it's still beautiful. And I think that the graphical style kind of like Wind Waker has aged really well because they went for kind of a cell shaded, like, you know, Toriyama's art in 11. There's like kind of a soft 3d applied to Toriyama's designs, which mm-hmm. honestly looks great. Like it's a really I've noticed that a lot of studios and different games and movies struggle to interpret like an anime style into 3D. Yeah. It's kind of a hard transition to make. And like that is Dragon Quest Eleven. like is the way to do it with Toriyama style. But I think eight benefits from being able to like be a little bit more cartoony, like the animations of Yangus when he's surprised, like it will be like a page in a manga versus like kind of a more grounded in realism approach of 11, which yeah. like isn't better or worse. I just like that eight has that distinct characteristic to it. Yeah. I remember specifically around the era that Dragon Quest eight came out also playing another PS2 game that took Toriyama's art and adapted to 3D, which was the Dragon Ball Z Budokai series, which was like a fighting yeah. series that I thought was really, really well done. Uh, but it, it it does almost show the two different ways that you could go about adapting that man's work into a 3D space on this kind of platform. And I do think that like going the more cel-shaded Dragon Ball approach, I would say, uh, between Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z was definitely the move in this one because it really does lull you into this sense of like fantasy, um, which they're really trying to evoke. They really want this to be about fantasy and about the journey and about the weirdness of your party um, and, and making it more cartoony and a little bit more like fun in that regard is like a huge boon for, for this game. Yeah, I also think the big, big plus of the PS2 version is the symphonic orchestra, which like it's killer. Yeah, that that was what held me back from loving 11 initially, because I played the pre S definitive edition of 11, right. which like was still really good. But it had that like MIDI orchestra. It, it, it does a disservice to the soundtrack in some ways. I think so. too. Um, yeah. And especially because like the music in 8 and 11 kind of fills in so many of those gaps where you're just going from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. It is a really important element of the game. So having the the orchestra is a huge plus. And also just the, the quality of the voice acting is so much better. Yeah. Like I think it's the same acting, but it, it's so condensed on the 3DS that it's like kind of off-putting sometimes other than Yangus. 
Um, but on the <laughs> PS2, like I'm like laughing out loud often in this game, like genuinely like at yeah. the jokes that they want to be funny. It's just a really like the I think Dragon Quest games have always been localized very well. So like a lot of the the scenes and the humor tends to land, at least right. so far. But yeah, I, I think that like, well, I do think the 3DS version is great and in many ways like it does improve certain things. I'm kind of sold on the PS2 version. And I think being able to play it on the TV, like this is actually a game that I think like it's it's cool to have it handheld, but I think this is a Dragon Quest game that it like wants to be a big spectacle. And I think it kind of fits better on a big screen experience. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like with you, you're kind of getting the, the best of both worlds in some ways. Yeah, I'm kind of getting a weird halfway point between the two. Yeah. The the thing for me about really wanting to check out the PS2 version specifically was I just had a really hard time playing the 3DS version for long periods of time. And I feel like more so than other Dragon Quest games, if you've listened to the show for a while, you already know a lot about probably uh, how, how they intend for you to play Dragon Quest games, which is like, you know, play a little bit here and there, like jump in for like 30 minutes to an hour. I found that even when I went over the 30 minute mark on Dragon Quest 8, I would start to kind of get like cramped up and I didn't really enjoy playing it on the 3DS. That that game felt to me like something that was really meant to be played in really, really short bursts, almost to the detriment of what the game itself wants. I think like Dragon Quest 8, like as a video game, as a narrative, seems to have longer periods between the narrative beats. It wants you to play for like an hour to an hour and a half, usually when you sit down. So I found that the 3DS version was a little bit at odds with that. On top of that, using like the the shoulder buttons to turn the camera or if you're as I was playing on the new 3DS, which has like the C-stick nub kind of thing, like a ThinkPad or whatever, like a ThinkPad laptop. I didn't find that to be very comfortable. I didn't find that to be very like good uh, for me, just like straight up like mechanic standpoint moving around the world I found to be a little bit difficult and a little bit stilted um, in a way that it obviously doesn't at all on uh, the PS2 version because you have the dual analog sticks and you're allowed to you know traverse this 3D space the way you were intended to. So there's that side of it. It's worth mentioning what the 3DS version adds because it is like great. Um, and this is, I think, one of the situations where there is really no clear winner. It's more about what you want out of the game. The 3DS version adds two extra party members to the game. It adds the ability to see monsters out in the world so you can like go into or avoid fights at will, which like depending on how you feel about random encounters, that might be it for you. Like that might be the reason that you do it. There's obviously a lot of balance changes. There's also some added story stuff and there are added side quests. For example, there is one that I am like kind of sad to miss playing the PS2 version now, but there's a ver- there's a side quest on the 3DS version that's like a-, a photo mode scavenger hunt where you have to run around with a camera and take pictures of things in the world and like go into first person mode and like return back to this guy who's like a photographer and like show him all the pictures that you've taken. And he like very professor Oak tells you if you did a good job or not, that stuff is really cool and good. There's also, again, the aspect of this that like the game is portable. The game fits on your 3ds. It does feel at times like an entire ass PS2 game shrunk down to a 3ds somehow. It's really amazing. Like it is, I think the biggest technical feat on the 3ds that I've played Yeah. outside of maybe Xenoblade Chronicles, which I haven't checked out, but I've heard is also wildly impressive that they managed to take that whole game and put it on the 3ds dragon quest 8 is not a new 3ds exclusive though like xenoblade chronicles is this just does play on every 3ds that you can pick up so that stuff is really cool it is really a great version of that game it is also the most easily accessible version of the game right now that you can play well yes and no i mean the e-store is going down and 
That's true. Cartridges of this game are really expensive. So yeah. It's actually cheaper to get the PS2, but your your chances of having a PS2 around are probably lower yeah. than, than not. Yeah, I, I think as of now, the eShop on the 3DS is no longer taking credit cards, if I'm not mistaken. So what you'd yeah. have to do is get like an eShop gift card and then you could buy it off of there. Point being, like for the next, I think, year, you can still get this digital on your 3DS, uh, which is nice. Yeah, I, I would I would recommend. I think I think it's definitely going to skyrocket in price once it goes down for good. Absolutely, yeah. And what I would love to see and I don't expect this, but I think it would be cool and it would be, you know, a good step for for preserving this game is like kind of what everyone wants from Persona 3 where like there are there are two versions of Persona 3 that each do something yes. cool, but like there needs to be like a definitive like let's put like put it all together in one place. I think that there's room for like a definitive version of 8 that has like the performance and like a- aesthetic of the PS2 version with all the extra content from 3DS. Like that just feels like a no brainer. Yeah. Like would probably make them a lot of money. And like d- doesn't seem impossible because this is the one that sold so well. So mm-hmm. like I feel like if there's any Dragon Quest game that will get like this VIP treatment, it will be like eight and eleven. You know? Yes. The missing link here, Stephen, is that there is also a mobile version of this game that is available That's on right. iOS and Android, which actually does look better. Like it, it is the PS2 version of the game, I think, but has much better fidelity graphics wise. Like they've added this like really nice, almost like deeper cell shaded outline to a lot of the characters. So it looks much crisper, but it removes the voice acting, which is like the killer. Yeah, you can't do that to Yangus. You can't do that to Yangus. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I do feel like there there is room for just kind of like a blending of all three of these into the perfect package, uh, which I really am looking forward to seeing eventually. Right now, for me, because I'm able to emulate this game um, at a higher at a higher resolution than the PS2 generally outputs, I feel like I'm kind of almost getting that on the Odin, which is amazing. Like I've, I've almost like hacked into existence the the definitive version of this game. The big caveat here, which is hilarious is that anytime there's any kind of uh, transition between scenes, any kind of fade, it just shows a bunch of like static. Like it shows a bunch of like white noise static. <laughs> anytime I like go into a battle or anytime there's supposed to be like a, a transition between gameplay and cutscene, there's just like uh, this white noise static that just go like and then go away. That's really creepy. Yeah, it is really creepy. It adds a whole other side to this game that is totally unintentional. Um, yeah. I don't know how to get rid of it. I'm sure I could go in and like mess with some settings and figure out a way to, to lose that. But uh, that is the one big weird caveat with the version of it that i've been playing um they'll add the option to have white static on the definitive version for switch i would i would love that yeah yeah the the inode and definitive edition um (laughs) i wanted to also bring up another game that i have found a very similar situation with that i feel like you will feel very strongly about which is final fantasy 6 oh yeah is a game that i have been really trying to get into for a long time and haven't really found the version to go all in on yet it's another one that I really I I'm bummed about the pixel remaster as I have mentioned because I, I checked it out when it came out that was like the one that I was waiting for because I know you feel very strongly about Final Fantasy 6 and that was one that I I think I would be most likely to finish <laughs> of all yeah. the like that era of Final Fantasy games like that or four probably yeah I have been doing so much research on what people consider to be the best version of Final Fantasy 6 and there's still really no consensus because all of the different versions have different things here and there that are either helpful or hurt 
those games that I think is kind of a bummer. The Pixel Remaster specifically doesn't have controller support if you're playing it on iOS or Android, which is a real it's a real bummer for me, I think, because I, I just have a really hard time with the virtual controls in that game. Um, I really wish it performed better than it did, but it doesn't, which is sad and especially weird considering there is controller support on the PC version of those games, because obviously you play it with a mouse and keyboard. But outside of that, they just let you remap those buttons to a controller if you have a controller. I don't know why that isn't available on the iOS and Android version. That said, I've been bouncing back and forth between the Super Nintendo and the Game Boy version like a weirdo uh, because I can't decide which one to play. So I'm at the same point in both versions of the game right now, but both of them have different issues. For example, the the Final Fantasy VI for Super Nintendo, the original one that first came out as Final Fantasy III, technically, in the United States, like is mistranslated at times and has like a bunch of weird stuff going on there. It's like a different translation because very famously, the the one guy who translated all these games for Square Enix had like a really condensed production cycle. He didn't have long enough to translate the whole game. So like there's a bunch of things that are just wrong with it. And it's noticeable to be clear, like the beginning of the game, there's supposed to be these guys named Biggs and Wedge who are in every Final Fantasy game. And one of them is named Vix instead of Biggs. So there's that <laughs> right off the top. But, you know, not not a game breaking thing, but like I want to have the experience that was intended. Luckily, the Game Boy Advance version has a retranslation that is much closer to what was originally intended script wise. But also it's the Game Boy Advance. So not everything looks the way it should. They had to truncate a lot of the sprites. The UI is like very different because they need it all to fit on the Game Boy Advance screen. There are and, and also the soundtrack is different on the Game Boy Advance version. That's the big thing. Yeah. The, the big thing is the music is condensed, which is yeah. a huge element of the Super Nintendo one. Yeah. You can play a patched version of the Game Boy Advance ROM, which includes more like better music, but it's still not the Super Nintendo music. Like it's it's as close as you can get to the Super Nintendo music on the Game Boy Advance hardware, but it, it sure is not like one to one. It's it's a game that I really, really think deserves like another look from Square. Honestly, if they just added controller support to the Pixel Remaster, I would be like smooth sailing, good to go, feel great. Um, unfortunately, it's only for PC, so I can't play it. Um, and and I can't play it uh, with controls on Android or iOS. So like I really have no way of doing it again completely wild that the pixel remasters are not on switch yet it's a thing that i have said many times like it just seems so obvious that they would do that yeah it's so strange too because like you know in playing the ds library final fantasy 3 and 4 both get like full-fledged remakes on the ds yeah and 6 doesn't and then 6 gets like one of the weaker pixel remasters but it's like that is like the crown jewel of that era yeah. of Final Fantasy it's very strange that was that like, like the reason to do the pixel remasters was for 6 yeah. I just wonder if there's like something else planned like I don't I don't know I, I, I do wish there was like a definitive way to play that game I would say overall the Super Nintendo one is probably the move like even though like there's some localization issues um, and also some stats just don't do anything right like the evade I learned this I'm, I'm yeah. so fucking in the weeds on this Steven. I, I learned recently so the evade stat doesn't do anything it doesn't work yeah your magical evasion is also your regular evasion yeah which is hilarious that's so weird um there's also a lot of bugs in that game too that are yeah. like like completely like game breaking like you can get screwed but like the game boy advance version with a bunch of patches and uh, to the rom that you can add there are people who have like patched out bugs and retranslated the game uh etc cetera, etc cetera. so there are ways of doing it but like none of them are official which is a bummer yeah i wonder if like there's there's plans to because i think square is aware that that's like a big game in their library so i just wonder what, yeah. what the plan is for that but you know we'll see 
<laughs> I feel like the plan was the pixel remaster and I'm, I'm just hoping that there is like a second shoe there where they drop it and they're like yes this is available on consoles now including the switch um, yeah that makes sense because that that would be the no-brainer recommendation for me like that would immediately be the place that I would play it because the, the pixel remasters add so much stuff that rules the one for four is awesome it's yeah. really good yeah I, yeah I loved the pixel remaster for four I had a really good time with it the mini map is awesome the ability to like see quests the like quick save wherever stuff is really good um I think I think the new orchestrations for all the music are like it's really really good yeah really stellar um I've only played the first one but I had a great time with it yeah yeah the pixel art is great I, I know people don't like the font I don't really mind it also if you're playing on PC you can change all that the thing about the PC version is like people have modded the hell out of the PC versions also so on top of having controller support and stuff you can also like patch in the original sprites if you want to and the original music and all that kind of stuff but it's just very interesting that they made these packages and like i still i still don't know which version of final fantasy 6 to play i have made it furthest in the game boy advanced version and that'll probably be the one that i continue to play yeah either one will work you know and yeah. It, yeah, it's just a bummer. The thing with going back to Dragon Quest Eight real quick is like yeah. regarding which version I would recommend. Like even though I'm, I think two, PS2 is going to be the one that I try to finish first, yeah. you're not going to feel the lack of the majesty of the world in the 3DS version unless you've already played the PS2 one. I yeah. mean, like it actually works pretty well. Like if that's your only experience, and it's like it's not by a huge margin, but I do feel like the mission of the game feels different in the PS2 one, and I think I'm like more into that personally. Yeah, I totally yeah. feel that. <laughs> not to keep going down this rabbit hole, but the other game that I also one of the other reasons <laughs> that I bought the Inoden for was uh, Persona Three specifically because I wanted to play fez and not persona 3 portable um and that's another one where as soon as you get a taste of the ps2 version of persona 3 it's like i don't know if i would want to play the whole game portable not that that game is bad there's obviously a lot of really great reasons to play persona 3 portable but i really do want that experience via the ps2 version uh so i'm excited to check that out eventually we talked about this a lot we actually have a, a patron bonus about persona 3 4 and 5 with our friends alana Oaken and callie barth dwyer and I think Callie and I played Persona 3 Fez and Alana played Portable. And like, there's big trade-offs to both. I think it does kind of feel like they made Persona 3 Portable as if you had already played Fez, you know? Yes, exactly. It, that's the first thing they ask you when you start that game yeah, up. Is, right. Did you play the game already on the PS2? Yes or no? Yeah. And playing as the the femme protagonist like is, is sort of like a follow-up to Fez in some ways. Yeah. But having that all in one place would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, hey, Alice, if you're listening, please. Enough mouthwash. <laughs> We just want to play your games. Thank you. Enough mouthwash. Enough mouthwash. (laughs) (laughs) I truly don't even know what to expect at this point. I've like kind of like there was a part of me that was like very hopeful for Persona 4 Golden on Switch because I've only played the original Persona 4, which was also on PS2. Yeah. Which honestly is great. But like Golden is heralded as the definitive version of that game. Yeah. And it's been long enough that like I do kind of want to replay it. But like I would replay Golden at this point. I I just wonder like what is more likely to happen first? Are Steam decks arriving and me just playing (laughs) Golden on that or it coming to Switch? Yeah. And I, I have a feeling that when I get my Steam deck in 2026, that will be earlier than Persona 4 Golden coming to Switch. Yeah, I think the only thing that I feel very confident about happening in this Persona 25th thing is that they will announce Persona 6 
not like a date, not what it is even. Just, just that it exists. Just yeah, that it exists is, and yeah. it's in development and like they're working on it. Uh, maybe we'll see what the protagonist looks like and that's it, you know? I think uh, so too, yeah. We'll get the color scheme. It'll be like green or something. Yeah, yeah That that's the only thing I know, not even for sure, but that's the only thing I feel comfortable guessing anymore after what we've seen happen <laughs> over the past couple of months. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I man, we've we've talked a lot. Do you want to uh, wrap this episode up? I think that sounds good. Let's do it. Cool. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, thank you for bearing with me and my COVID voice. I, I hope you had a good week. <laughs> <laughs> all of our links are available at Into the Cast Online. That's uh, Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and Twitch and places like that. Uh, we also have a Patreon that you can back if you'd like to, uh, where you will get access to patron bonuses that we do every once in a while uh, for things that we're excited about. Thank you so much to everybody who's back in the Patreon. As we always say every week, if back in the Patreon impacts you negatively financially, uh, please don't back it. It's totally cool. You can you can uh, bail at any time and you know you don't need to give a reason or anything. We totally understand. Uh, but thank you for everybody who's doing that. That having been said, we also have a Discord that you can join uh, that is very active and very cool and very fun. So uh, you can join the large group of people who are constantly talking about stuff. We have like a billion channels in there. So there's probably something that you'd want to talk about uh, available in there. Yeah. Thank you also to AJ, who is back from camping and edited this episode. Um, AJ, thank you so much for everything that you do. Uh, if you want them to produce your show, uh, head over to the link that is in the show notes. Heads up. Uh, we got a bonus episode coming up soon. Uh, it should come out, I would guess, the week after this episode comes out. And that is about Pokemon Red and Blue. Honestly, it was a blast. It was really fun. We had a really good time recording that one. Yeah, yeah. it awakened something within us, but that was a really, really fun game to revisit. And I think like coupled with the game itself, revisiting that time and like the beginning of that franchise and like yeah. where it started, where it is now. It's one of the few things that you and I have been able to like experience from the beginning in our lifetime. Yeah. Which is kind of surreal. Yeah, I feel very lucky to have been able to like been sentient enough to play and enjoy <laughs> Pokemon Blue right when it came out. Yeah. Sentient enough is our EP title, by the way. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, that is it. Thank you so much for listening. We are going to record next week's episode now, which is exciting. Uh, but we will see you next week. But Brendan, I will see you soon. I will see you soon. Hey, thank you so much to your listener. My name is Brendan Bigley. You can find me on the internet at Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. You can find me at Stephen Hilger. Stay in the past. I want the I want the Pokemon with the monster truck tire. Mm-hmm. I want the future. I want to ride my space bike. I don't give a shit what's next. Me and Fue Coco are stuck in our ways and we're not moving a budge. We're not budging an inch. <laughs> Goodbye. See ya. Worst garbage, the online.